This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Luis Alberto Urea, author of the novel Goodnight Irene. I couldn't help being an arty guy, an arty boy, which worried my father. He wanted me to be more macho. We'll be back with Luis Alberto Urea after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013. And if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are. And how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests. I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is, how did we get to 9,000 hours? Is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create this show, and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create First Draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the First Draft community. You can support the show today at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate on a monthly or annual level. As a thank you to my patrons, you receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. 
Please stay tuned at the end of the interview. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support. And thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment. And on to the 400-something episode. My interview today is with Luis Alberto Urea, author of four books of poetry, two short story collections, six novels, two memoirs, and four books of nonfiction. His nonfiction account of a group of Mexican immigrants lost in the Arizona desert, The Devil's Highway, won the Lannan Literary Award, and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. His novel, The House of Broken Angels, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Fiction and New York Times Notable Book. He lives with his family in Naperville, Illinois, and he is a distinguished professor of creative writing at the University of Illinois, Chicago. His new novel, Goodnight Irene, is inspired by his mother's Red Cross service during World War II. The book begins in 1943 when the main character, Irene Woodward, abandons an abusive fiancé in New York and enlists in the Red Cross and heads to Europe. She makes friends with a fellow volunteer, Dorothy, during training, and together they are part of an elite group of women nicknamed the Donut Dollies who command military vehicles called Clubmobiles at the front line, providing camaraderie and a taste of home for the troops heading into battle. The two women join the Allied soldiers streaming into France after D-Day and are subsequently embroiled in the dangers of war from the Battle of the Bulge to the liberation of Buchenwald. Irene encounters a love affair, great losses, and a deep and profound friendship with Dorothy. We began the interview with me asking Luis Alberto Urea this question. I was thinking about Goodnight Irene and how I've heard it, but that I didn't really know the origin. And I started really researching it and I found so many different answers to yeah. what it meant. And so I was curious what it meant to you, what where you settled on that. I didn't really know what I wanted to call this book. Um, and it was it was many different books before it got to this state. <laughs> And uh, probably six different versions, all of them trash canned. Um, and Julie Bearer is my wonderful agent and sort of, uh, you know, warrior goddess. And she was very patient with the earlier versions of this book. And um, I would turn them in. And it, it was focusing on, you know, and it was very much based on my mom's experience that I knew of, which was feeling forgotten and misunderstood and trapped in Southern California when she really in her heart was a New Yorker, but couldn't bear to go back for some mysterious reason I, I couldn't figure out. Um, and so I was writing that, a kind of a, a WPA kind of a project in the shades of gray, you know, about the older woman dragging her groceries home in a cart and bemoaning her fate and just Julie was wonderful and very supportive every draft and but she'd always say something like you know that's really good but you know World War II <laughs> I'd say World War II wow no oh, in the next version now well, you're getting closer but you know World War II 
and uh, it suddenly started to hit me that yeah there that was really central not only to my mother's experience but um to what i was trying to say and so my mother's middle name was irene and when i when i surrendered to the realization that yet another world war ii novel but i could maybe do something better than that which would be a testimonial to my mom and to her best friend jill pitts at the time the driver of the truck she was in so it just became the story of irene which gave me a little bit of of fictional gap between phyllis my mom and the character though the entire novel is based uh on the actual sequence of events and journeys that they actually uh, went through. Um, and so Irene, and Irene, and uh, there's an epigraph at the beginning of the book from Juan Manuel Serrat, a great Spaniard, Catalan singer, um, balladeer, poet. And it's the song is called Irene. And uh, the line that moved me that's in one of the two epigraphs at the beginning of the novel, was no comprendo como usted puede pasar y no verla. Um, you know, I don't understand how you could pass by her and not see her, which is the the entire version of the earlier drafts of what I was trying to write in a in a line of a song. So that was on my mind, and you know, I, I'm friends with lots of musicians and. Uh, I probably wanted to be a musician myself, but couldn't figure out how to play guitar. Uh, but I wrote lyrics. But, you know, that song has always kind of haunted me. I never put, thought of it in context of my mom. Um, and the other part of the genesis of the of the title was the handyman character, the pilot that she gets to know, who I wanted to be um, not a stereotypical a romance novel kind of hero, but this this guy who had unexpected depths. And when she is in trouble, when they first get to know each other and and mourning, uh, he he sings to her. And I thought, what song would he sing? And I just realized, I love that song. He would know that song. And you know, Lead Belly, come on, he led better. Um, and so that that not only gave me the title of the book. Um, but also a kind of trajectory for this character. Who was he? The segregated army, yet, you know, he was with the Red Ball Express, all the black drivers and soldiers. He he was a friend to everyone uh, because he was, like the, the women in the book, uh, uh, patriotic, American. And they were all about Americans and being family. And it, it felt, all of that felt like a nice introduction to the book, it set a, a kind of a tone uh, of emotion and and uh, residual warmth because that song makes everyone feel warm, but also helps set an agenda. In these times, I thought, yeah, you know, part of the understory of the novel, I think, is what is an American? Because I think we're being handed a load of hooey right now about what Americans are, and I don't like it. So it was just my little way of of subverting things, but also I think of holding up things that I think were really important about about who we are. 
I want to get to the the story and your mom, but I'm curious something you said about working with Julie, your agent, to sort of suss out what you were really trying to write about, uh, like basically helping you figure out maybe that intersection between what's interesting to you and then also what might be interesting to the reader and where the kernel of energy lies that you can't see yourself. And I'm curious if that was the first time that happened for you or if it's if you need that reflection to get to the kernel? It it just depends. I think this story was so, it was is far too close to me to understand how to write it. You know what I mean? It, it It's it's my mom and my mom was troubled, you know, and I did not know this, this vivacious creature that was Irene. Um, all I knew was the beaten down gray woman who hated being a beaten down gray woman, but couldn't couldn't come out of that that valley. Um, and uh, so, yeah, to have a team is fabulous. I, but it's always it always begins with Cindy, <laughs> my wife. We do everything together, and we do all the research together. And we do the travel together, and you know that began. Um, with I think the Devil's Highway, but she, she, she survived the, the uh, Wagnerian Sturm und Drang of watching me try to write the Hummingbird's Daughter over and over again. That was an impossible task. So I'd, I'd say probably the, the most difficult tasks for me have been both Hummingbird's Daughter and Goodnight Irene to try to find the tonality and so forth. But you know, Cindy's a, a journalist. Uh, 20-year veteran of Gannett and the newspapers. Um, and so she's 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 my partner. You know, we do everything. We do all the book tours together. We're gonna take this monster tour this this year together. We're driving, by the way, to honor the club mobiles. Um yeah. And so the the versions of of the book needed some trusted voice to say, I I don't think you're getting it. I don't think you're getting it, which, of course, you know, is hard to hear. I uh, I like to make believe that I'm I'm humble, but part of me feels like I'm doing something really important and I'm really good at it. And by God, if anybody knows this story, it's me, pal. And it took it took, you know, it took Team Urea to point out to me that, yeah, you may know this story. We don't. And you're going to have to do better. My secret voice inside, I have a lot of them, but um, I was i was discovered as a kid by Ursula Le Guin. She was my first authorial guide and guru. And um, what an intractable <laughs> woman that never backed down, you know, never, never settled. She was she was fantastic. So I hear her voice, too. She used to call me Luisito. Um, and when I find correspondence from her, it's always, you know, mi Luisito in Spanish. Um, and, you know, a little a little remembered raised eyebrow of Le Guin's is, speaks volumes. And I knew I was getting there because when I finally found this iteration, um, after traveling all over Europe, after traveling all over New York and going to the childhood homes and going to the family home in Mattituck and so forth. I saw my mom 
Um, but as a as a sidelight, it's a little story that I I often tell now because I talk about my mom all the time because um, everybody wants to know about her, which is kind of wonderful actually. But um, when we when we met Jill Pitts, the character who inspired uh, the driver Dorothy, um, she was as far as we knew the last surviving woman from that core, and um, we thought she was dead. Turned out she was not. And as fate would have it, as they might say, she lived 90 minutes from our house in Illinois, which seemed impossible. So it was a series of almost supernatural to me kinds of events where things just clicked. And um, she was 94 when we met. She was 102 when she died. And we spent hours with her, hours and days talking and mostly laughing, but talking and learning and drawing the insides of the truck. So I'd know it with a schematic. And, you know, she actually had the, the map she used to drive all over World War II. She'd kept it. But when we first met her, went to her home, she let us in. And on her wall was a portrait of my mom hanging on the wall. My mom was 27, looking dreamy. She had this movie star thing going on. Um, and Miss Jill said this, and this is this was the book. She said, I drove the truck. Your mother brought the joy. And I was, you know, you, I was rocked on my heels because I thought my mother brought the joy. And I... I, I saw this because she had little explosions of just effervescent delight and whimsy under this burden that grew heavier and heavier and heavier over time. And so when we went through, once again, my mother's vast archive, to me anyway, of pictures and so forth, I realized, and in Jill's pictures especially, in every one, she looked like a 40s movie star. She was bright, all hair always done, often striking a pose, often laughing, even in the field, even doing awful things. She was always, she was putting on, you know, the 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 donut dolly for these boys. It was all about making them have one more day of service and and have a bit of hope. Um and I think the the shadows got to her. So I knew suddenly, oh, my God, that's the story. This woman who brought the joy in spite of unbelievable hardships and injuries, wounds, both psychic and physical. Um, and by the time I was born, she had withdrawn and I think struggled. And the struggle got worse as time went on. So um, this was my chance, you know. So did you feel like you were bringing your mother alive in a way that you never knew her growing up before she died and that you see her as a much more complex person now? Uh, she was pretty complex, but, but yes. Um, yeah. And I knew, I didn't know what I was going to write either. The, the former novel attempts weren't, very good quite honestly though i think there are a couple of things from them that 
were good little 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 chunks you know here and there there's a there's a long chapter that i cut out of the novel but it's going to make a great story it's called gator versus the terrible cousins and uh i might i might do something you know as a little a, a little uh, a little present to the people who seem to like the novel because you know my mom's nickname, for example, really was Gator, which to me was so outrageous because she was not, she was the furthest thing from a Gator, but she was so amused by it that her boy cousins in Mattituck called her Gator because she had won a, a, a baby alligator at Coney Island or something, and she kept it in her bathtub until, of course, her mother flushed it down the toilet. And I hope it's. It's, uh, you know, offspring are living in the sewers in Staten Island very happily. But um, that was just little things like that made her come more and more to life for me. You know, I, I, I guess I guess, yes, I, I I knew when I realized I was so little to go by in the nonfiction world, in the research world, that it was all about story. and. Um, it was a it was a kind of a summoning of the young Phyllis, Phyllis Irene. Um, but I also knew because I've been in this game an awfully long time and I teach and all that stuff, of course. But, um, you know, that 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 wonderful Da Vinci line that Picasso stole, that art is a lie that illuminates the truth. And I thought, yeah, she deserves the best um, monument I can construct. I'm not a sculptor. I I draw. I do I do art and illustration sometimes. But the I think the greatest thing I could do for her and her memory uh, is to try to write a great American novel. <laughs> I'm not saying I did. I'm just saying you want to try. And uh, her heroes were all literary. You know, aside from people like Patton or. She was a lifelong Republican, but loved JFK because Kennedy was a war hero. So she was in with him. Um, but her heroes were were writers. Ernest Hemingway, my God. Steinbeck, you know, she adored Fitzgerald. I'd say those were her three big ones, followed by Mishner. And uh, although we had a, a barrio semi-ghettoized early days when we got out of Tijuana, living in these apartment blocks that she detested. We had books, 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 you know, Dickens, Mark Twain. Uh, and so I owe what I do, I've realized now, to my mother. I owe it to my mother. My dad adds a little bit of hot sauce here and there. It was very Mexican. So uh, all of that stuff that was misery to me as a kid, is now the the foundational early draft of who I was going to become. And it was my mom. It was my mom who gave me literacy. So when you were growing up, did you know that she was a Red Cross girl, that she had gone over during World War II and served these donuts and was there to sort of boost the spirits? How much of that did you know? And what was her what was she like for you as a as a mother and and what led you to want to write about her she was interesting she was the only american in my family she was it 
all Mexicanos, everybody speaking Spanish. They couldn't say the word Phyllis. They'd call it La Pilis, Doña Pilis. <laughs> or um, because she was so delightful when she was in, you know, if she'd had a glass of sherry or something and she relaxed, she was just the life of the party. And they would call her Feliciana, which means, you know, the happy one, because <laughs> they couldn't say Feliz. Um, but she was harried under siege. She she could not believe that she'd been brought down into this sort of tenement life. Um, and the marriage wasn't happy. And she was trying to save her boy. She, I think she felt she'd made a real mistake, um, marry my dad, uh, and then finding herself whisked away to, to Tijuana, of all things, when he said, you know, we will go live among my family in Mexico. I know she was thinking something quite lovely, not a dirt street in Tijuana jammed in the the house my grandfather had built, you know, full of all these difficult and eccentric ureas. She was, I think, also fooled because many of the urea clan look Irish. Look at me. She was darker than I am. Um, but to that end, and you may see where the literary world begins for me, um, my grandmother's Full name was Guadalupe McMurray. <laughs> so there was this this streak of Irish Mexicans, and uh, my grandfather Juan Urrea was a Basque man. We're Basque. Um, came during the conquest with with Cortez. So you know she she'd fallen into this this baffling world that she didn't quite understand. The only non-Spanish speaker. Uh, and she'd go to San Diego from Tijuana to work. My father had a green card, so, you know, he would drive her to work at a department store and he would go work in a tuna cannery. And I, I can't imagine what she thought. And she would tell me, you know, she used to call me dear boy. You know, dear boy, when I would come home, you'd be asleep. And when I'd leave, you wouldn't be awake yet. I never saw you until the weekends. And she had a little pram for me, and she would walk down our hills, a rough dirt street, into downtown Tijuana, pushing me, because there was one drugstore that had a little fountain, and she could have a, an ice cream soda of some sort of a float and read American magazines. Good housekeeping. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, and that was her little tenuous grip on the woman she'd left behind. And I think that slipped and slipped and slipped. So my mom was um, complicated. We left Tijuana because of an outbreak of tuberculosis, which took me down. And uh, she was horribly ashamed of that. She was introduced to shame, I think, very much. And I think it... It accelerated her her isolation and, and PTSD, which who knew? Who knew what that was? Um, so when we were in San Diego, in these apartments I told you about, she had a, an army footlocker. I still have it. And uh, she 
we used it for a, a, an end table. It had a little tablecloth over it. And I was just told, don't ever open mother's case. And I said, you know, no, mom. I was, I wanted to be a priest. So I was a good Catholic boy, mass every morning. So I was like, I'm not going to do that, mother. Uh, and as soon as, you know, one day when she walked off to get the bus to go to work, I opened it. And that's where I found all this stuff, including the Holocaust pictures she had taken at Buchenwald. Um, I was probably in fourth grade. And how do you equate all that horror with mom? And she knew as soon as she got home, I'd gotten into it. I probably forgot to put the tablecloth over it or whatever she knew. And uh, she was not happy that I had seen that stuff and she had to explain what it was. So I got an early education into her experience and she was just starting to have nightmares when I was in fourth grade. Then that accelerated. By the time we escaped the barrio and moved to a, a, a suburb in, in the north part of San Diego near La Jolla, Claremont, she said they were in full, full on nightmares almost every night. Um, and she withdrew into herself more and more. The misery index rose and it never occurred to me, why did mom never go home? She went home because she was a jewelry buyer. Um, so she would go to New York, but I never knew if she saw her family or not. I know she didn't see her extended family in Mattituck and so forth. Perhaps her mother, but they had a very spiky relationship. It was very confusing to me. Um, but that was, you know, you grow up with it. So that's, that's it. it was mom's American and everybody else is Mexican. And I'm some sort of hybrid I'm a Southern California dude, dude, you know, we all talk like bros all the time, man. And my friends were all actors or musicians or artists or or mimes or whatever. I couldn't help being an arty guy, an arty boy, which worried my father. He wanted me to be more macho. And, uh, you know, that was the mix. So, yeah, I knew about my mother's stories. Uh, I did not know that I would ever write about them. Um, and the, the, the one little thing I'll throw out to you about her and myself was she always wanted me to change my name to Lewis. Why don't you be Lewis Woodward? You know, why all this Mexicanness all the time? And I didn't have an answer, you know, and I think at one point, you know, you're kind of a jerk when you're a kid. And I, I said, who asked you to have me in Mexico, mom? Who asked you to name me this? If you wanted me to be Lewis Woodward, you could have named me that. But I'm not Lewis Woodward. I was trapped in the middle of this marital war, this culture war. Um, you know, so my mother's greatest desire was for me to go east to see what real people lived like. Because to her, California was, as the old quote was, the land of fruits and nuts. And, the, you know, the vegetables are terrible here. The fruit has no flavor, dear boy. Everything about it drove her crazy and um, no culture. And we were we didn't have a whole lot of money. And I think, you know, if she'd had money, there would have been culture. She would have been taking me to the old globe to see Shakespeare, but we couldn't. 
We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. So she, I, I read your piece that was in the New York Times yesterday that was about uh-huh. your mother and talking about her time, you know, serving for the Red Cross. And that's the focus of this book. And as you said, there was this real life person, Jill, who was fictionalized as Dorothy. So they were kind of partners throughout the book, you know, driving this mobile around. But that you didn't, she lost touch with Jill. She was like her best friend. And then after the war ended, they lost touch. And it took you, I don't know, decades and after your mom's death to find her. But she was also the source of so much of the information that you got. Can you talk more about that? Yes. uh, I, I, I think, I think when my mom married my dad, she she'd been living in San Francisco, Sausalito, um, kind of a bohemian. Married my father. He whisked her off to Tijuana, and I think that's when everything, the Iron Curtain fell. And uh, you know, the last time she was in touch with Jill was 1954. Um, and so when we showed up, Jill was a little baffled. Like I said, she was she was 94 years old. Um, Cindy, of course, the reporter in the house found her and we were shocked. We thought she was gone. Um, she she was shocked that Phyllis had a son. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things. She's when we finally got to her house and, and hung out with her, the legendary picture of my mom on the wall. Um, and And she said, well, I never heard about you. And I said, well, I was born the year after you lost touch with each other. Um, So Jill, we spent both of us a great friendship with her and uh, learned so many things about the journey, um, the travels, uh, the experience, the service. And again, my mother had had opened up to me uh, over the years. It took a while. When she was first, I still remember this because it was the most shocking thing I'd ever seen the Buchenwald pictures when I was a little guy and the most shocking thing I'd ever heard when she told me, you know, I, I, I went in there and I saw a bulldozer pushing tree trunks into a pit and they weren't tree trunks. I realized, and I thought, what, 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 what? Um, and she told me this, the one story that she told me several times, I think it was, one of the darkest things about the war for her is that she took pictures. She was compelled to get a record of what she was seeing. And she said, I was taking photographs and feeling more and more guilty, more and more wrong to be taking pictures of these victims. And I stopped. And she said, and I have ever since then felt horrible that I stopped. She said she wanted someone to understand what that war was really like. Um, and so, you know, that 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 was an impetus my whole life to try to figure out what she was talking about. And, um, to, to, you know, I'd read books about Buchenwald. There was a book called Medical Block Buchenwald, I remember, that I found in the library. And 
you know, as much as I could read about the beasts of Buchenwald and all this, um, she was very motivated by the, the, I think, the terrible things. And so as a writer, you're trying to find something. And it's interesting because I, I didn't know, we went to Buchenwald, of course, and our, at one point we drove their path through Germany following Patton around. Um, and we ended up in Weimar and, you know, they, that's where they talked to Patton personally that we know of. Um, but they, they, she had a very warm relationship in her mind and heart with George, George Patton, or as she called him, Georgie, Georgie Patton, <laughs> you know, being there and walking around the grounds um, you understood things that you don't you're not going to comprehend from reading the books because there are just there are there are inferences just in the imagery of Buchenwald that is so infernal. Uh, I can't imagine what it was like for her when the, the all of the buildings were still up and the scent, which no one can describe. One of the soldiers said it sound it, it didn't smell like you would think it smelled. It smelled like a really uh, the smell of a, of a wet dirty dog this weird musky scent he couldn't explain weird stuff like that so we're walking around in there and to realize that the electrified fence which was right next to the crematorium on that end of the camp was less than 50 yards away from the nazis zoo and they had the bear pit seriously you know 25 yards maybe from the fence and they would have picnics and parties and they would feed the animals inside of the starving men on the other side of the electrical fence. It's so diabolical and foul, isn't it? And, you know, we went into the crematorium and there were some terrible details. And the problem is that it was so overwhelming just being there now and thinking about my mom, I can't imagine what it was like to be exposed to that at all. And my editor actually had to pull back. He he pulled details out of the book of all things. He says this 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 destroys the entire novel in a weird way. It's it, it's this roadblock that readers won't get through. I want it to be as as stunning on the page as I think the experience, as, as I could get to the, an experience that shocking. And I think the nightmares for my mother came uh, partially from that and uh, partially from the stuff that inspired that crazy middle section of the novel of mad attack by the Germans and so forth. You know, though that exact scene is all fiction, novelist, you know, it was inspired by a couple of things she would say. And one of them was the most terrifying thing. There were two things that terrified her the worst in the war. One was the nighttime approach of German army tanks, the Panzers and the Tigers, and hiding and hearing them knock houses down. And the other was, and she never would go further than the suggestion of what she was talking about was being terrified of the Russians. Though they were the allies, they uh, 
And she said they were Russian troops, but that she and a couple of the girls hid in a barn under a haystack because the Russian troops had come into this village and were assaulting women. And to listen to that all night and pray to God, please, and don't let them find me. It just whatever, please. So I think she she was overwhelmed by horror and both horror and guilt, and it that she was begging for mercy, that she was probably kind of relieved that it was someone else. You know what I mean? Not her. And the last thing that haunted her was that um, there's a scene based very much on this moment from real life in the book that they got to a village and um, a family begged them to hide their daughter in the back of the truck and sneak her out. And they turned the people down. They said, no, no, we're here. You're safe. And the, the dad kept saying, we will die. We will die. Save my daughter. We'll give her to you. Just take her. And they, they turned him down and said, you know, we, the, the army's coming. There's people coming. You're going to be fine. And then they never could find them again. And she never knew what happened to that child. So she had all this stuff inside. You know, and how do you find the mix? I don't know between the one who brought the joy and the one who carried away the heartbreaks, you know? Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but that was the process. Um, and the, the, the attempt to find a, a, a synthesis of those things and to make a cohesive portrait of, of human beings, trying to help other human beings as best they could because they were patriots. And it's interesting to me now because now that there's so much stuff, for example, the, the op-ed in the Times about my mother, I'm getting mansplainers writing to me to say, well, you know, it's a bit overstated. Those women were in the rear. You can read any book. And they're never mentioned in anybody's book. And I think, yeah, thanks for making my point, pal. They weren't mentioned in the books. They should have been. But, you know, just a just a chick making a donut. What's the big deal? So there's a bit of rage in me about all this. And I, I, I've got my, you know, my burning sword of justice in my hand because I'm going to make these women be seen, damn it. I hope. We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. So what is your process? I'm curious because it sounds like you do so much of your research with your wife. When you actually yeah. sit down to write, how do you approach it, especially when you have so much um, material and so many different moods that you want to um, exemplify on the page. How did you, how did you do it? <laughs> I try to get out of it as much as possible. You know, I, uh, my writing day is me getting up reluctantly uh, and then watching some news and then say, I think we missed an episode of deadliest catch. Let's watch that. And <laughs> Oh, I think I need to go out and weed the garden. And, you know, Cindy patiently waits as long as she can. Or we need to go to the gym. As soon as I'm done with you, I have to go to the gym. So um, those things, I try to get out of it. I don't know why. It's, it's especially something like this. I felt working on this book, 
so much responsibility that I did not know how to do it. Um, Cindy and I, you know, we we met, we found each other late. We were we were our own journalism scandal. She was a reporter in Arizona, and uh, she was sent to do a profile of me. She didn't know who I was, and the minute we saw each other, it sounds goofy, but we were just like, "Oh, there you are." We hadn't even talked, just on the phone. Um, and so we both had been married once before, uh, and th they didn't work out. <laughs> and so we were very aware of lost time, lost opportunity. And it just became a, a an unwritten rule that we always would do touring, if not every time, most times together. And her research skills as a reporter the first book I was working on, well, I, I was working for 25 years on The Hummingbird's Daughter, to give you an idea. This book, Irene, not that many years, but if you think about it, my entire life. And so her eye is really good. And part of the writing process is the invaluable bedtime writing workshop, where at the end of the day, we, you know, we just talk it out. We talk about things. And she tells me what she'd like to she'd like to see and what she thinks might not be working. It, it was really interesting. Um, and so the process, once I finally get myself at the writing table, uh, is epic. It's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a hike through the Rockies or something. Um, I put on music. I listen to music because I think it creates a cave for me. Maybe it isn't for mood. You know, I wrote parts of I Goodnight Irene to full volume Nine Inch Nails. I mean, it doesn't matter. I just have the music. Um, though there are some tunes like Goodnight Irene, Irene, some of the old stuff. Every once in a while, I'd put on my, um, you know, World War II hits of the '40s CDs. And just immerse myself, especially in the the club mobile club talent show scenes like that. What do they play on the record players? I know some of the records they had in the truck, so I've listened to those. So there's a lot of music in the background. I believe I'm a thwarted musician, like I said earlier, because I I'm really interested in the music of it. But I'm also kind of a I wanted to be a preacher. So I may be writing sermons because I'm really interested in what I'm always trying to teach my students, which I call the understory. It's not really imagery. It's not really uh, Harvard used to call it the indirect means of telling a story. That to me is where the the real depth is. Or, uh, Stephen King, I think, said once really wonderfully, you know, um, every really good house has a basement. And the really good ones have a sub-basement. And that's where all the spiders and the rats are hiding. <laughs> and he was talking, of course, about writing. And uh, so that's the process. I try to engage in, in the practice of writing. I don't think of it as a job. I don't think of it as a craft. I think it's a practice. And I think, I don't want to sound pretentious, but I think if, if you are really involved, it leads you to your best self a more intuitive self. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, I have so many. It was dry. That was 
that was fiendish of you because I couldn't figure out what in the heck. But I wanted to talk about this. Um, this is a very obscure little book. You'll see it's it's beaten up. <laughs> it's a little paperback. I love those old paperbacks. I found this in Harvard Books one day. Um, and it's by Alan Weir, wonderful writer. He wrote, I think, three books. But the, the two I know of are Blanco, which is a book about Texas. And then this book of stories called Things About to Disappear. And I teach this story called Things About to Disappear. I love the use of lists. And this is a story weirdly made of lists. And the story itself, you realize, is a list. But here's a thing near the end of the story. Um, and it's a little bit longer than what you require. So I'm going to skip through it. But I just want to give you the gist because it's so heartrending to me. And I remember my daddy in the last week of his last brave month. Remembered the evening I walked into the bedroom where he lay lost in the big double bed, disappearing before our very eyes, his arm going up like a chicken wing, plucked and washed for frying, his skinny elbow over his eye, tears running down his sharp, bony cheek. Don't see me this way, son. Please don't. His face gone, only bones left. Huge white eyes, nose, teeth, a medieval woodcut of death. I remember holding his long, thin fingers. How cool and dry they were. How soft. How much love I felt through those thin pads of his fingers. Felt them twitch and tremble with pain and sadness. Saw him smile at me, his lips unnaturally wide and pink in his disappearing face. I remember suffering because I couldn't make him whole again, because I didn't have some magic thing to say to him. And he went on for dead, son. When I was a kid, here he stretched his arm toward the window where I heard for the first time all summer the cicadas in the live oak. We used to call them, what are those? Cicadas, I said. Yeah, that's right. We used to call them Crickadies. And he spelled it for me. And he told me that since I liked words, he thought I might like a word like Crickadies. And I tore off a piece of paper from the telephone pad by his bed and wrote it down and folded it up and put it in my wallet where it still is. Crickadies smelling like leather and sweat. <laughs> I just think that's a showstopper. Um, and I realized that, that that little passage is probably me in a nutshell. I think it speaks to the writer me so much. Um, I'm just that, that I, I, I felt like Alan Weir was some sort of a, of a sibling somehow through words. Um, but yeah, that's a passage that, that haunts me all the time. I love it. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft or something you like. I like to double dip. So I often team up my new novels with poetry, but this is about grace and it's about writing. Um, and it's something that I, I wrote as a handout for my students, but I put it in this book. It's from my book, Piedra, um, and it's a section of notes 
not quite poems. This is all I know of grace. Chekhov once said something like, to a chemist, dung is as important to a landscape as roses. I think of where we have come after all our torments and trials, after our despair and hope, after waiting for the call from the oncologist, after all the birthdays, after all the impossible bills and rejections and embarrassments. We are in a great bald field, and we are essentially alone, or believe we are. We are lonesome, and a cow or an elk or a javelina pauses and deposits a ration of feces on the ground. Flies come right away. We are disgusted by them, yet their eyes are each 1,000 prisms that reflect 10,000 colorful mountains. And metal green beetles come to lay eggs, and a westerly wind spins up and brings three dandelion seeds and daisy seeds and mushroom spores all the way from your childhood. And they catch on the edge of the crap and settle in. It rains. They sprout. Unexpectedly, a raven flies overhead and launches a dropping that contains one cherry pit. That pit falls into your small accidental garden. More rain, moonlight and sunlight and heat and snow and more rain. And the cherry pit sprouts and the seeds around uh, the cherry tree grow and they bring bees and butterflies and hummingbirds. Before you know it, you have an oasis and that becomes a meadow, that becomes a cherry orchard, that creates a small wood where bison bring cottonwood fluff in their fur. They dig wallows that fill with groundwater and become small lakes. You are the settler who comes into the virgin forest and drinks that sweet water and you make a home and you open your notebook. This is how it works. That's the best I can do. That's all I know about grace. Where do you write? Everywhere. But uh, I, uh, I mentioned I love to write uh, on the move, catch things on the fly. I love to especially write on walks, meditative walks, hikes. Um, there was a year when I was under a lot of stress and struggle, and Cindy arranged for me to spend time in the mountains. So I, I, I love to write at Breadloaf. There's a little bridge I sit on in Vermont for hours with a little stream that feels like it's talking to me, left over from my Brodigan days when, the, you know, stop fishing in America. Um, and then I went to the Rockies and stayed at a friend's lodge, and, the, and it was amazing. But uh, I like to write in the car. In the house, I have a loft upstairs with a window that looks out on a great red oak full of birds, sometimes a hawk that watches me through the window. Um, and I'm surrounded by good mojo stuff, and I write there. That's where I write. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? It's all writing, so I'm not sure I get away from it. But, um, yeah, I like to go to movies, go to the theater, because I'm pretentious now. So we go to the theater a lot, concerts, 
uh, out in nature. But as soon as I'm in nature, it can't, you can't stop it. And I start writing. Everything is haiku. Everything. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Cindy. I always share it with Cindy. And then I have friends, you know, I have writer friends um, that I check in with and we talk about things or, you know, um, but yeah, we're, we're, a we're a literary factory here in my house. How have you dealt with rejection? Terribly. <laughs> I take it as a personal assault, you know, an affront to my dignity as a human being. Um, weirdly, I don't get many rejections anymore. You know, it's a lifetime of rejections. That's, you have to, you have to toughen up. Uh, it's part of the, it's part of the boot camp part of it. Right. Um, I'll tell you, you might appreciate this. So when I was at Harvard, of course, I was fairly pretentious about being at Harvard. Um, and uh, the 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 sections I was teaching were called style and device in fiction. Something I would not have said in California. Um, and uh, I subject, I subjected, <laughs> I submitted a story for publication to a magazine and I thought they would be impressed. I said, well, you know, I'm teaching at Harvard Expo's style and device in fiction. And the editor wrote me back and said, I see many devices in this story, but I don't see any style. I thought, oh, my God, are you kidding? So, yeah. I don't know if that answers your question, but I don't like it. I don't like rejection. What is your favorite word? You ready? Parangariku tirimikwaro. I bet you ain't going to get that one. I I can't even get a root out of it. <laughs> it's a word that my father used to use on me to make sure that I could pronounce things in the proper Mexican way. It's an indigenous word from the south of Mexico, and it means the place of the bells. My dad's favorite place in Mexico, I think, aside from his hometown, Rosario, Sinaloa, which is Macondo, by the way, in every weird sense. Um the place of the bells. It was a place that was devoured by a volcano that sprang up out of a field. Farmer was plowing. And in a few days, it had consumed the entire town except the top of the church, the steeple. And you could hear the bell. Um, so that's it. And I I couldn't get I, years. He would spring it on me. How do you say it? Paringaranga. Oh, you know, no, he was intractable. And then finally, when I said it, he was so proud. I was finally a Mexican. <laughs> I feel accomplished every time I say it. I think my dad is tipping back his pell-mell in heaven. <laughs> well, thank you so much for the conversation. I'm so honored that you took the time. Thank you. Oh, thank you. This is so much fun. If you like today's show with Luis Alberto Urea, author of the novel Goodnight Irene, check out my interview with Taya Abret, author of the novel Inland. We talked about the U.S. Camel Corps, a 19th century experiment by the Army using camels as pack animals in the Southwest, the intersection of imagination and the real world, and how real people and fictional characters respond to trauma. 
You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 415 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Jennifer Groats, Buzzy Jackson, and David Vandenberg. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.